Job chapter 5. Job chapter 5, the title of the morning's message, The Continued Ramblings of Eliphaz. Uh, Job has gone through his most difficult time in his life, in his, uh, anybody's life for sure. Uh, three, seven, three friends have come to him uh, to help him through his difficulty. They've sat seven days there with him. Now, they had those seven days to collect their thoughts as they watched all that was going on. And they could sit there and decide just what they wanted to say to him to help him go through this calamity that he's experiencing. Uh, they could put those words through their minds over and over and over to make sure they said just the right thing in just the right way to be of help to Job. As we saw last time, Eliphaz, the first of Job's friends, uh, breaks the silence that existed for that seven days. And with all that time to prepare, Eliphaz responds by unloading all of his pent up emotion and thoughts on Job once he has the opportunity. Now, again, I am convinced Eliphaz has the best of intentions in the words he uses. And all, we also saw that what he spoke oftentimes was very true, according to Scripture, uh, was accurate. The problem with what Eliphaz said was with that he was totally unaware that he was being used by the devil to push Job closer and closer to the edge and get him to curse God and lose his integrity. Eliphaz's basic premise is the same as it was for each of Job's friends. We'll see that in the weeks ahead. Uh, Job's friends believed that Job would not be going through this suffering if there were not some unconfessed sin in his life. And each of his friends share one common problem, which is the misapplication of the truth of the word of God. We've already seen, we'll continue to see this as we go through, these men have a great deal of wonderful information about God and about his universe. And most of what they say can be verified by scripture and is verified by science as well. Their problem is not a lack of knowledge. They had a great deal of knowledge. Their problem was knowing when and how to apply what they knew. And this is such an important point to make that I want to repeat this to you again, even though we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. In our desire to help others, knowledge is not enough. We can have all the knowledge in the world and still be failures when it comes to helping somebody else during their time of difficulty. In fact, much harm has been done to other believers by those who had a great deal of biblical knowledge but didn't use it correctly. In Proverbs, the Bible links three qualities together in the same breath. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Those three things are linked together. Uh, Proverbs 9.10, for example, says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. There are all three of those qualities in just one verse. And Proverbs oftentimes links all three of those qualities together and each of those qualities is dependent upon the other. Knowledge is a wonderful place to start, but it's not enough. We also need wisdom as how to apply God's knowledge, and we need understanding as to when to apply the knowledge God's given to us. Eliphaz and his friends have determined that they know why this is happening to Job. They've taken their knowledge, found a basis for their beliefs, and knocked the breath out of Job by blasting him with their theories. And they'll could repeatedly tell Job that all this has happened to him because of some deep, dark, secret sin in his life. They have all sorts of knowledge. (laughs) But they'll show little wisdom and little understanding. And so, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, it'd be good for us to use these men as negative examples and reinforce in our minds the need to seek from God not just knowledge, although we need that, but not just that. Seek also wisdom and understanding from God as well. All three are necessary so that we don't do harm to somebody else in the time of difficulty. So in Job chapter 5, as we read the first uh, seven verses this morning, uh, Eliphaz continues his presentation. And in verse 1 through 5, what we see is Eliphaz's mistaken thesis. Eliphaz's mistaken thesis. First of all, look at verse 1. He says, Call now if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? 
First of all, he says to Job that he has no mediator. Job has no mediator. Uh, Eliphaz asked Job a question in verse 1, but he already knows the answer to it. Job has nobody on earth to turn to. Nobody. Uh, he knows that from the very beginning. There was no one on earth that could rescue Job from the problem that is going through uh, that he's going through in his life right now. The only one Job could turn to was God. And so far, God has been totally silent regarding Job's trial. Now, there's a lot of theolo- uh, theology in the verse uh, that we don't want to miss. When we're in the midst of a trial, when life deals us something we can't handle, there is only one place to turn, and that's to the Lord. There is no saint to pray to. There is no other person that can help us in that time. A turning to alcohol or to drugs or to some other worldly pleasure will provide no help whatsoever in alleviating the trial. And one of the many reasons that God brought Jesus Christ into this world and the reason God allowed him to suffer as he did was so that we could have a bridge between us and God himself. God knew there would be rough times coming in our lives. He knew there would be times when no earthly help would be enough and there would be no remedy in that in our time of need. And through sending his son to us, God provided for us, praise God, a mediator. One that could span the gulf between us and God. And the only choice that we have when times are tough is to look to God for help. And whether his answer is immediate or whether we stay silent for a time, or maybe even until eternity, we put our faith in that one who loved us. We must go to him as the mediator, and through the mediator he's provided to us, and must wait for him to choose the right time to respond to us and to help us. So Job has no earthly mediator, nobody to turn to to help him, no attorney to step up and plead his cause and argue his case before God. And so because of that, Eliphaz moves to make his own case. Look at verse 2. He says, for wrath killeth the foolish man, and envy slayeth the silly one. I have seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I curse his habitation. Eliphaz makes the point to Job that there has been no mistake. He is making the point that the consequences in Job's life have come to a foolish and a silly man. It's clear that he's referring here to Job when he says these things. Beneath this innocent-sounding proverb, what Eliphaz is really saying is, if Job was serious about all this I-wish-I-was-dead talk, then Job is silly and Job is foolish. Eliphaz believed that Job was really angry because he got caught in his own sin and was now being forced to pay the price for it. If he were not filled with anger and envy, he would not be wishing himself to be dead. Now, if I asked you to give me the definition of a fool... I'm sure there would be a variety of answers and maybe even a few names you'd give me to illustrate of the points you're making. But the biblical definition of a fool is any person who rejects God's truth. Anybody who rejects God's truth is considered by God to be a fool. And what that means is it doesn't matter how many degrees a person has behind their name or how long they've gone to school. If a person rejects the truth that is found in the word of God, that person, according to God, is a fool. Psalm 14.1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, To to refer to Job as a fool is to miss God's definition of what a fool really is. Now, whether Eliphaz was aware of that or not doesn't really matter, because whether he was or not, it didn't stop Eliphaz from pressing the point against Job. Eliphaz's message to Job is this, Job, your sin has finally caught up with you. You said, you've said that you wished that you were dead, and now I know you never were to say such a thing if your heart was right before God. What you are, Job, you're a fool. 
Your whole life has been motivated by envy. So now Eliphaz says, I understand it all. Now I get why you wish you were dead. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to pass judgment on somebody when you're not going through their trial? (laughs) Ever notice how easy it is to figure out all the things that are going on, all the answers that need to be said when you're not the one who suffered the loss or is going through the difficulty? Hey, Eliphaz, have you ever lost all your family and all your children in one day? Have you ever had all your material blessings destroyed? Have your wife tell you that you'd be better off dead? Hey, Eliphaz, have you ever uh, sat in the ashes of the city dump using a piece of pottery to scrape the oozing boils from your flesh? Hey, Eliphaz, do you think you'd handle this any differently than Job did if this was happening to you? Do you think you'd be sitting there with a smile on your face singing that I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart? (laughs) What do you think, Eliphaz? Would you handle it differently? Eliphaz believes he has all the answers. Eliphaz believes he has great words of wisdom to impart to Job. He has this all figured out, and he wants to make sure that Job gets all the benefits of his vast knowledge. (laughs) The only problem is this. His premise is all wrong. He's wrong from the start. And believer, we must be very, very careful in passing judgment on another believer in Jesus Christ who is going through a trial. We must be very careful that we don't find ourselves in Eliphaz's place, believing we have all the answers, when in fact, all we are really doing is adding to the misery of the one who's going through the trial. God has never called upon other believers to figure out reasons for other people's trials. Just so you know that. You've never been called upon, I've never been called upon, to figure out why God is doing something in somebody else's life. And the fact that many presume they're able to do that is remarkable in itself. What we are called upon to do, please hear me, when a person is going through a trial, is one thing and one thing only. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When one of your brothers or sisters is going through a difficulty, we are called upon to do one thing, help them bear that burden. Help them carry that load. Never called upon to pass judgment. We are called upon not to locate something in somebody's life that has caused the difficulty they're going through. Regardless of the behavior of many believers in the body of Christ, that is simply not one of our responsibilities. What we are called upon to do when somebody is struggling is to love them and support them and pray for them and help them through their burden. And nothing else. That's all we need to do. That's something we can all do that we are called upon to do by as believers in Jesus Christ. And anything else that we do puts us in the same boat as Eliphaz. Now, look at verse 4. It says that his children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them, whose harvest the hungry eateth up, and taketh it even out of the thorns, and the robber swalloweth up their substance. Here Eliphaz says that for the wicked there is no mercy. For the wicked, there is no mercy. What Eliphaz describes here is exactly what happened to Job. Everything he says there is Job's life. Job lost his children. They were crushed. His harvest was destroyed. Robbers swallowed up his substance. Everything that he describes there is exactly what happened to Job. So here is Job having suffered the loss of everything, and he's being treated by Eliphaz as the very personification of evil as he goes through the difficulty. Job, called a perfect man in chapter 1, verse 8, a perfect man in chapter 2, verse 3, is now being accused as a man who is full of sin. And this 
thing that Eliphaz is doing here brings us to another tribulation connection. We've talked about this all the way through this book. You're going to see the tribulation show up in, this, in these words. Here's another connection to that. A definite a characteristic of the tribulation will be the reversal of values. The reversal of values. People will call that which is good evil. They'll call that which is evil good. Isaiah warned us in Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That is 21st century America right there. (laughs) There it is. We see that occurring every day of our lives. Things that are clearly identified as sin in God's word are being labeled as alternative lifestyles. Behavior that is destructive is being excused as a result of those in society who are downtrodden and oppressed. And what that lets us know, folks, is is that the day of the Lord is not far off. We're close. We're close. In the tribulation, the Bible tells us there will be false Christs and false prophets who claim to be sent by God, who are actually the messengers of Satan. And those who follow those false Christs will be killed. Prophetically, Eliphaz here is referring to the Antichrist who's going to appear during the tribulation. And this Antichrist is going to be the very personification of evil and wickedness and foolishness. And let me tell you, he's going to come saying all the right things. He'll say exactly what everybody wants to hear. He'll have all the answers. And most that live during that tribulation time, 99.9% of them are going to follow him. But there's coming a day in that time where he'll be destroyed. Proverbs 2.22, but the wicked shall be cut off from the earth and transgressors shall be rooted out of it. At some point during that time of the tribulation, God is going to judge the wickedness of that Antichrist and is going to cut him off and will end his reign of terror. Now, do you see how far off Eliphaz is? You see how far off? He's taken wisdom that applies to the Antichrist, the very opposite of God, and has applied that wisdom to Job, one of God's choicest servants. And this gives us one more warning of how careful we must be when we begin to give advice or share knowledge with somebody who's struggling. There is nothing more dangerous, I don't believe, than a well-intentioned Christian equipped with sound biblical knowledge, but who is void of wisdom, (laughs) has no idea how to apply it. Whether we set out to do good or not, if we're armed with a mistaken thesis, we will fail, we'll cause increased harm to the individual that we seek to help, and we can be used by the devil to discourage another believer in Jesus Christ. Good intentions are wonderful. Many bad things have been done with good intentions. Uh, they, can be, they must be coupled with sound biblical knowledge and the leading of the Spirit of God to have a positive effect. Now look at verse 6. Because in verses 6 through 16, we find Eliphaz's misapplied truth. Eliphaz's misapplied truth. He's established his premise. He believes that Job is going through all this because Job is a horrible sinner. Now he's going to throw out a series of biblical truths and proverbs to reinforce that thesis. But just as we've already seen, Eliphaz has a great deal of truth to teach, but it's misapplied when it comes to Job. It doesn't matter how much truth we know. If it is incorrectly applied, it doesn't do anybody any good. Now look first, Eliphaz speaks of inevitable trouble. Inevitable trouble. Look at verse 6. Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, Neither doth trouble spring out of the ground, yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Man comes from the dust, Eliphaz is right, according to Genesis 2.7. That is not the source of his afflictions. 
Uh, trouble comes to us for a variety of reasons, according to God's word. One source of trouble is an evil heart attitude. Uh, James 4.1, from whence comes wars and fightings among you, come they not hence even from your lusts that war in your members. Another source of affliction, according to Ephesians 6.12, is the source of Job's affliction. Listen to what Paul says, folks. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. As eloquent as Eliphaz is, as beautiful as his words are, the fact is Job is suffering because of spiritual warfare. That's why it's happening. We know that from chapters 1 and 2. Eliphaz completely loses sight of the fact that there's a spiritual world going on that is constantly and relentlessly fighting against our visible world. Satan's choice, Satan's desire, Satan's focus is to hinder God's plan and thwart God's purposes, and he will use anything and everything that he has at his disposal to do that. Amen. Now, here's what Eliphaz says it is true. We are all born into trouble. <laughs> We're all born into trouble. From the day a person takes their first breath, trouble begins, and every person is born with something very, very wrong with them. Every person born. We each come into this world with a sin nature that desires to do what we want to do and desires avoiding what God, doing what God wants to do. That's why Jesus Christ made it clear in John chapter 3 that every person born into this world must have two births. They must be born twice. Each person must be born of the flesh once and then once born of the spirit. The real issue, folks, is a real basic problem with our physical birth. We are born with something wrong with us, deeply, deeply wrong with us. And that's why people so desperately need a second birth, a spiritual birth that creates that new creature inside them that is nothing at all like the nature they were born with. And please hear me, without that second birth, sin brings physical and eternal death. There must be two births. If you've only had one, you've only halfway there. You've got to have the other one, two births, in order for uh, your physical and spiritual issues to be solved. Then look at verse 8. Because here Eliphaz gives inappropriate advice. He says, I would look, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my cause. Now, do you hear the, the, the boasting going on there? Job, he, Eliphaz says, Job, I don't know what you're doing, but if I was in your place, I'd be seeking God. I'd be committing my cause to God. Here's what I would do if I were in the situation that you're in. The easiest thing for a person to do is tell somebody else what they would do if they were in their shoes and going through their crisis. The easiest thing to do. And what's worse, Job has already done what Eliphaz says he should do. In chapters 1, verses 20 through 22, Job committed his cause to God. Job sought God's face. Job did not charge God foolishly. Job is way ahead of Eliphaz on this one. And then in verse 9, Eliphaz speaks of the incomprehensible God. The incomprehensible God. Look at verse 9. Which doeth great thing. Let's read verse 8 with it. I would seek unto God, and unto God will I commit my cause. Which doeth great things, and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He talks about God. Eliphaz has missed his mark in his theory and his advice to Job. And so what he does now is runs to a safe spot. He begins to talk to Job about the greatness of God. And again, everything Eliphaz says is true, but what good is this information in Job's suffering? Eliphaz comes across as a very pious, as someone very holy, as someone who says all the right things and says them in just the right way. He may intend to bring glory to God, and he does, but underneath it all, you find Eliphaz's real feelings. He believes Job is a sinful man who is getting exactly what he deserved. 
And what Job, what Eliphaz is doing here is a variation of what we might call prayer preaching. Prayer preaching. Ever been in a prayer service somewhere, a prayer meeting of some time, and somebody gets up to pray? And in the midst of their prayer, they begin to give a sermon to the people? Oftentimes, some frustrated preacher who never gets up to preach a message will use prayer time to preach that message to the people. So what he does is he goes through his entire message during that prayer. That message, he's just dying to preach, never gotten the opportunity. Under the cover of prayer, he gives the entire message to the people. Uh, that's what Eliphaz is doing here. On the surface, he is celebrating the wonder of God. But underneath it all is the real message. Job, God is great and you're a filthy sinner getting just what's coming to you, getting exactly what you deserve. Now, it's possible for you and I to do the same thing. We may know of somebody who is struggling, and we give them great spiritual truth and even quote scripture to them. Underneath that, we're using a spiritual application to condemn them and to condemn their approach. Look at verse 10. He's talking about God now. He says, who giveth rain upon the earth and sendeth waters upon the field. To set up on high those that be low, that, uh, that those which mourn may be exalted to safety. He disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the froward is in their, is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope in the noonday as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Now, in verse 10, he speaks of God's control over the rain. Now, in spite of all the scientific statements, all the explanations regarding the process of rain, the bottom line is, folks, God is the source of rain. He's the cause of it. It rains when God wants it to. It doesn't rain when God doesn't want it to. And God takes the water that comes from the sky and disperses it through the rivers and the creeks and through the melting of snow and then through condensation, brings it back up into the sky again and begins the process all over again. God does that. Nobody else does that. God does that. That did not happen because of some big bang. That didn't happen through some random series of events. And no person has any control over it. And there's nothing random about it. And if you want proof of that, just turn on your 6 o'clock or 11 o'clock news tonight and listen to the weather report. (laughs) And you'll find out they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea. I listen to that thing and I say, you know what? I'm not even going to bother with this because <laughs> they have no idea what's happening. Uh, and then when it doesn't happen, they have all these reasons why it didn't happen. They try to predict it and the scientist attempts to understand it. But in the end, it is God who has complete control over it. Folks, God has control over everything. Amen. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. No matter what is going on in this world, no matter what is going on in your life, God has control over all of it. Amen. You need to hold on to that. Realize that. Look at verse 11. He says to set up the high, uh, set on high those that he, that below, that those which mourn may be exalted to safety. Going back to his original premise that Eliphaz has, Job, he believes Job has a problem with God. And if Job will just confess his sin and get right with God and come to God and sorrow for repentance, God will forgive and God will lift him up again. Nothing wrong with that biblically, folks. He's exactly right about that. If that's where a sinner rests, that's exactly what they need to do. We find examples all through the Word of God of that. We could look at examples in our own lives and lives of others that exemplify what he's saying there. If sin is the problem, confessing and forsaking that sin is a solution. That puts us back into right fellowship with God again. God will always restore the repentant sinner. All that is true. I praise God for all of that. It just doesn't apply to Job. It just doesn't work here. 
And so Eliphaz is off the mark again, but he keeps writing this premise. Look at verse 12. He says there, he disappointed the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the counsel of the, the forward is carried headlong. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope in the noonday as in the, light, as in the night. Here's a line of thought that you'll hear even these days. Eliphaz proposes that everything that's happened to Job has happened by a deceit and craftiness. Eliphaz is sure that Job became wealthy and powerful by deceiving and fooling others and using them to his advantage. And because of that, Eliphaz believes that Job is getting exactly what is coming to him, exactly what he deserves. Now again, Eliphaz is off on his application as it applies to Job. But there's a sound biblical principle here that we need to be aware of. God does defeat the scheming and the craftiness of the wicked. God does that. God defeated Pharaoh when he schemed to keep Israel enslaved in Egypt. God defeated Tobiah when he schemed to prevent the Jews from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. God defeated Absalom when he schemed to pull the kingdom away from David. Even the devil was defeated when he schemed to defeat the Son of God by having him crucified at Calvary. God does not honor the craftiness of the wicked. Uh, Some people are just too smart and just too wise in their own ways and in the ways of the world to realize that God is smarter than them all. (laughs) God always has the final say, and God controls the final destiny of every woman, man, boy, and girl on this earth. There are many wise and crafty people who are thinking themselves right into hell. God does not honor the craftiness of the wicked. God has the final say. God will always have the final say. There are many women who have imagined themselves smarter than God. There's professors in colleges and universities. CEOs in businesses, there's performers in the entertainment industry, there are athletes in the sports world, all believe that their thinking on the matters of life and death are as good, if not better, than the words of God in the Bible. I'm amazed at how often they'll take one of these folks who has no knowledge of anything they're talking about and ask their opinion on things, just because they made a movie or scored baskets or whatever they did. And they're asked to be authorities on some issue they know nothing about. And they wax poetic and wax eloquent about things. And they have no idea what they're talking about. (laughs) Because they refuse what the word of God says. They scoff at the Bible. They see the Bible as old-fashioned and out of date. And they see people like you and I who believe that book as unenlightened and uneducated and uninformed. I'm going to tell you something. They will hold that position here, and they may be honored here. Uh, God, they may be seen by men and women as being the authorities here. You'll see them on TV all the time as the ones to listen to. But they're going to face God someday. Amen. And they're going to take all that wisdom with them and present it to him, and it's going to mean absolutely nothing. Amen. <laughs> when they face God, all that wisdom, all that knowledge, all that that's, that they held on to is going to be worth Nothing whatsoever. All their degrees, all their accomplishments, all their achievements will mean absolutely nothing. They're going to face the son of righteousness and they're going to be left in the dark. It'll be the wise caught in their own craftiness who are falling on their knees and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord before being cast into the lake of fire. I don't take pleasure in that, folks. That's just the reality of it. Every person on earth at some point in time, whether they believe in God or not, is going to stand before him and bow their knee and confess him as Lord. Much better to do it now than wait till then. Ought to do it now. (laughs) They'll fall on their knees and confess him to be who he really is. So Eliphaz's premise here is true. Even Paul quoted this uh, this principle in 1 Corinthians uh, 3.19. He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. 
For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Paul takes Eliphaz's very words and quotes them as scripture. What the fellow is saying is true. It's just said in the wrong place, at the wrong time, and to the wrong person. And even though we may be armed with the truth, a lack of wisdom is going to cause us to misapply the truth that we know. And instead of being a help, we're going to increase the agony of that one that we are tempted to help in what they're going through. Verse 15. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth and from the hand of the, uh, from the mighty. So the poor hath hope and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. Uh, those words, folks, have not yet been fulfilled. You see, those words are going to be fulfilled when you and I are finally safe in heaven and our deliverance is complete. Once we're in that place where the soul never dies, that's when all this happens, but not until then. Once Israel makes it through the tribulation, they'll be exalted again and put back into their rightful place. God promises final victory to his people. Victory in Jesus is reality, folks. It's just not yet. It's coming. It's just not yet. God will bring victory. That time of that victory may not be until we reach the other side, but it will come. Now, before we close this morning, I want to look at the final verses here and look at the millennial type that is found in the final verses of this chapter. The millennial type that Eliphaz gives us. In verses 17 and 18, he says this. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, despise not the chastening of the, the Almighty. For he maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make whole. Here is a principle again that is supported throughout the word of God. Uh, misapplied to Job, it's still true. You'll find it in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. You'll find it in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. And here's the fact, folks. God does chastise his children. Any believer who chooses to go outside of the will of God, refuses to return and invite God to bring things in, rather invites things into their lives that are against what God wants, uh, God will provide chastisement to them. And here's the deal, folks. Whether we like it or not, God does not give up on us. <laughs> God does not give up. Uh, he will do whatever he must do to get us back to the place where we need to be. Whatever he needs to do to get us to return to him, he'll do it. And he will beat you all the way to heaven if he has to do that. <laughs> but he'll do it. Because God is there to take, make sure we get back on track. And once we come back, then God is there to bind our wounds and comfort us and heal us again. God will there, be then there to restore us back into fellowship and relationship again. Uh, if you were a parent or, or remember what, how your parents raised you, uh, you remember times when you disciplined your child or you were disciplined for some wrong behavior. But after the discipline, uh, your parent would take you in, your ar- in their arms and hug you and love you and show you that it's all over and everything's okay. That's what God does. Exactly what God does. God will chastise us. God will do the same thing to us to get us back into relationship. But once we return, all is forgotten. Our relationship is restored just as though it never happened. God forgets. God forgives. God moves on. That applies individually. It also applies to nations. Look at verse 19. It says that he shall deliver thee in six troubles. Yea, in seven there shall be no, there shall no evil touch thee. Notice that word seven there. It keeps showing up. That seven is a connection to the tribulation time, those seven years of great tribulation that come just after the church is raptured out. That's the time where the Jews will be punished by God for seven years because of their rejection of him as their Messiah. Verse 20. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. Thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue, neither shalt thou be afraid of the destruction when it cometh. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh. Neither shalt thou be afraid of the beasts of the earth. Eliphaz lists seven things here that Job would be delivered from if he repents. 
Now, if you look at that list and compare what you see there with the book of Revelation, you're going to find that every one of those things that Eliphaz mentions here is part of God's judgment upon the nations during during the time of the tribulation. So the first part of this principle is clear. God will discipline those he loves to draw them back to himself. He will do it with us. He'll do it with those who, with nations of Israel. He'll do it with any person who wanders away and wants to come back. But notice in verse 23. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. And thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace, and thou shalt visit thy habitation, and shalt not sin. Thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great, and thine offspring as the grass of the earth. Job? If you'll just repent, just give up this sin you're holding on to, just acknowledge it and let go of it, everything's going to be okay, your misery will be over, and the scourge will end. Now, folks, again, if sin were the problem, that is the perfect answer for Job. But we also need to see, folks, these verses have a prophetic connection. Because those verses prophetically look to the tribulation, past the tribulation, rather, to Christ's millennial reign on this earth, where there's going to be peace and all will be well. After the seven years of tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back onto this earth and sets his feet here. He destroys his enemies, gets them under control, and then for a thousand years, Jesus Christ reigns upon this earth. And that reign is going to be a reign of peace. It's going to be a reign of prosperity. There'll be nothing like we've ever seen before, nothing like we'll ever see again on this earth as he reigns for all for that thousand years. And verse 23 talks there about the beast being at peace with one another. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, tell us that same reference in, uh, in reference to the millennial reign. Verse 20, 24 talks about a time when God's people will, would be at peace. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, gives us that same picture when time is no more. God's people are safe and secure in the new Jerusalem. Verse 25, Eliphaz tells Job, if he repent, generations after him will be blessed. And God does also promise that he will bless future generations of those who will live a life that is upright before him. Folks, here's something we may not think about all the time. We talked about it Thursday night. We can have an effect on those who come after us just by obeying God and following his will as we live our lives before him. People talk about wanting a posterity, wanting something that they will be remembered by. The best thing that you could be remembered by is living a life for Jesus Christ while you're here. You can establish a better posterity than doing that. But prophetically, God also promises that the children of Israel will be restored and will fill all the earth as God intended way back when he made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Now, there are those who don't believe that. There are those who believe that God is done with Israel. Folks, that is not true. That is not true. God has a whole slew of promises he has not even yet fulfilled for those people. And there will come a time when their kingdom will come and that kingdom they've been waiting for will finally be established on this earth and God will bless them as he promised to bless them way back in the book of Genesis thousands of years ago. Once that tribulation is over, once the punishment ceases, once Christ's kingdom is established on this earth, God is going to restore his people and bless them as he promised that he would. Now, I'm guessing Eliphaz had very little understanding of what he said here. I'm sure he thought this only applied to Job. It's very unlikely that he knew that underneath it all, Satan was using him in an attempt to defeat Job and cause Job to lose his integrity. But in spite of all that, there is a truth here that I want to close with this morning, folks. Let me tell you. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. If there's some sin going on in life this morning, God will find that sin. He knows about it. You say, well, he's not done anything yet. Well, don't try his patience. (laughs) 
God will attack sin. God will remedy sin. God will acknowledge sin. And God will punish sin. And whether we're talking individually, whether we're talking nationally, that is the case. And listen to me, please. The only remedy for sin is repentance. The only remedy for sin is to acknowledge that sin and tell God you're sorry for that sin and recognize it as sin and tell God you're sorry for what you've done. Amen. You know, our relationship with Jesus Christ began with repentance. That's, right. That's how it started. You couldn't get saved without acknowledging your sin. Amen. Just like you can't go to the doctor and get well until you acknowledge you're sick. Well, in the same way, you've got to come to God and let him know you've got a problem and that problem is sin. God could not have fellowship with you until that sin was settled. And sin couldn't be settled until we recognize it for what it is. What repentance is, it is acknowledgement of the sinfulness of our sin. And when we repent of that sin, we turn our back on that which offends God. God removes his punishment from us and brings blessing instead. And the blessing is fellowship here. And the blessing is eternal fellowship with him in heaven forever. Repentance started your salvation. That's what got it going. But I don't know if you've noticed, but in my life at least, sin continues to be an issue. (laughs) Just because I'm saved doesn't stop me from sinning, or at least having the desire to sin. And I'm guessing the same is true of you as well. I'm sure in your daily life there are those times when you just feel prone or felt drawn to sin. Well, see, folks, uh, that sin can still be remedied. It applies not only to our salvation, it also applies to our daily walk. Uh, God will not bless And God cannot bless as long as we allow unconfessed sin in our lives. As a good father, God will continue to afflict the child of God uh, who regards sin in their life until they finally get it settled. As you choose not to get it settled, again, God will beat you all the way to heaven. But God is going to acknowledge that sin. If you won't, he'll acknowledge that sin every step of the way. Here's the blessing, folks. Once you repent of that sin, God forgets it. And it's settled. You may remember it. God doesn't remember it. God chooses to forget that sin. So once you confess that sin, it's settled with God, and it's over and done with, and God never remembers that sin again. God remembers to forget that sin and treats us as though that sin never happened. You know what I find sad in my own life? I find sad that God wants fellowship with me sometimes much more than I want fellowship with him. How sad is that? God is so willing to take care of my sin, and I am so willing to hold on to it. God wants fellowship with us. God so desires that fellowship, he will restore us to fellowship the second that we confess that sin to him. But that fellowship is impossible until that sin is settled. As long as that sin exists, there can be no fellowship with God. So the principle of repentance, folks, applies to our lives personally. It's a principle by which God deals with the nations on this earth. And the millennium is a perfect picture of God's full forgiveness and full restoration to anybody who will turn from their sin. Now, folks, sin is not the only reason for suffering. I know there are many, even Eliphaz, who will say that. That is not the only reason for suffering. However, it can be one reason for suffering. God may use suffering to get your, get, get your attention to acknowledge that sin. So it's possible that, that suffering is the result of some sin in our lives. And if that is the case, the first step to remedy that is repent that, repent of that sin. Amen. Get it taken care of. And then examine your life daily. Daily confess any sin that arrives there. And then forsake that sin to the glory of God. Turn your back on it. And by doing that, we invite God, the creator of the universe, to restore and maintain fellowship with us through the confession of sin. And the promise of God is that he will be faithful in doing that. If we confess our sin, 
He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us. If we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <laughs> what a promise in that verse, folks. God will do that. It's a principle by which God governs the earth. It's a principle by which God governs his people. Confess sin, forsake it, and fellowship is restored just like that. Amen. Praise God for that. Amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed.